Chapter 2 A Redneck Yankee It was a mid-afternoon in the early fall and mild. The air temperature was in the 60s. The sky was a slate gray overcast. I was with Johnny Z and a close friend of his from Jackson, Mississippi. Johnny has since gone on to be a respected doctor. I am not sure where his friend has ended up. That afternoon, we walked down a narrow, little-used jeep trail that tailed off to no more than two deep ruts before merging into the edge of flooded bottomland adjacent to the course of the Tallahatchie River. This was normally a dry floodplain. When the river was up high, as now, it formed the backwaters of Sardis Reservoir, a few miles north of the city limits of Oxford. It was a typical fall day in many respects. The trees had lost most of their leaves and stood like thousands of thin silhouettes with water lapping at their knees. It went on for miles. It had been a rainy summer and the water had moved across acre after acre in a shallow sheet, making the forest a huge wooded swamp. Johnny Z and I were fraternity brothers at Ole Miss. He was an enigma, to say the least. Brilliant in an academic sense, but as redneck as they come at the same time. He walked with a limp, wore thick black framed glasses, and his hair was constantly askew. He came from a relatively large city by Mississippi standards, but like many of the young guys I met at Ole Miss, he knew his way around the woods in a shotgun as well as he knew the academics that had been drilled into him. We had talked often of hunting, mostly ducks, for which he had a reputation, one that only grew over the years I knew him. I had spent a lot of time in the lowland woods of Massachusetts and the mountains of New Hampshire and Maine. I had always had a desire to be a hunter, but as I grew up, had never had the opportunity. One afternoon, Johnny asked me if I would like to go out with him and a friend to do some teal hunting. The mallard and wood duck season was closed, but there was a short teal season that was open right then. I borrowed a 12-gauge shotgun from another fraternity brother, made a quick stop at the Lafayette County Courthouse for the proper state hunting license and federal duck stamp, and then we were off. Sardis Reservoir is a large lake that was formed by the damming of the Tallahatchie River by the Tennessee Valley Authority. It can be accessed at its dammed southern end by going west from Oxford on the highway to Batesville. There is a large downstream park adjacent to the spillway with broad green expanses on which to picnic and play. Juxtaposed as it is to the upstream end of the lake, it sits in stark counterpoint to it. The upper northern end was not easily accessed. The roads were never better than two-lane blacktop. Depending on where you were heading, the road would turn into either a rough paved secondary road, or, more often than not, a constantly wet red clay road that wound for miles through wilderness-like forest before ending at a remote landing used exclusively by fishermen to launch small boats and at times 
lovers seeking solitude, and frequently a fisherman came to tend trout lines placed earlier with their hundreds of hooks dangling from plastic jugs of various sorts on translucent monofilament line. One usually could wander around those clay roads in Sardis backcountry for hours, possibly even days, without ever seeing another human being. At times, a wanderer out in those woods might stumble across an out-of-season deer carcass, lest its meat that had been taken by an indigent family for food. In fact, there were many small cabins out in the forest where people lived either legally as subsistence sharecroppers or as illegal squatters. The distinction was often difficult to discern. However, there was little doubt that those folks lived much as their ancestors had a century earlier. The cabins were rough-hewn, without running water, separated from a remote outhouse and heated in winter by an open fireplace. Fishing and deer meat added to what produce these folks grew on small, unobtrusive plots. Sometimes they had rights to the land. Sometimes they didn't. For the most part, it didn't seem to make much difference. Often there were not roads close by. These people lived in the 20th century as anachronisms to a life long since passed in most of the United States. I once went on a manhunt with the local civil defense because one gentlemanly old man had just disappeared on a trip to Oxford one day. I came across several of those cabins while trekking through the outback. I can recall breaking out of a thick stand of trees into a small clearing to see a wood cabin with a wisp of smoke coming from its chimney. It was a scene one might expect in 1870, not 1970. I also viewed all this through my Boston-bred, preppy, Irish Catholic eyes. To the men who manned the line with me that day, it probably had a degree of normalcy. To me, it had more of a surrealistic quality. My guess is the scenario has not changed much from then to today. There are still people living off the land deep in the Mississippi woods. Kudzu, the ever-creeping vine that envelops anything that stands still for more than a few minutes, is everywhere in North Mississippi. It covers trees, wires, poles, fences, homes, wrecked cars, and buses, and most other stationary things. In the remote woods, it also innocuously spans deep washouts in the clay soil that often occur in the spring. Deep running water sometimes moves across the river bottoms, leaving steep, high-walled scars that can be 10 to 20 feet deep and as much across. When the kudzu jumps from one side to the other and fills in with its dense foliage, it makes the washout invisible. A person off the main road hiking through miles of kudzu might become too careless. An older man might no longer have the perception required to avoid one. Once the kudzu layer has been penetrated and the person has fallen traumatically into the void, he could be trapped by either his injuries, his remoteness from the nearest help, or both. 
We never found the man for whom we were looking on the manhunt. Today, they would use helicopters, infrared sensors, cell phone location, GPS, and the like. He would probably be found. The man for whom we searched may be in one of those washouts, or possibly something else happened to him. His family just accepted his loss in a type of natural resignation that comes with centuries of compromises with higher authority and nature. There is hardly ever a coroner. Formal death certificates are rare. Once a respectable mourning time has been completed, the interment process at times is no more than the digging of a deep enough hole. These are people who will never show up properly on a U.S. Census report, a tax roll, or as voters. Since they are never counted in the plus column, neither are they counted as a loss when they depart. They are like benign non-entities. They hurt no one, and their existence is barely acknowledged by most. In my experience in later years, I certainly saw my share of underdeveloped, and in some cases primitive, civilizations in foreign countries. Sometimes I even saw them in the same close geographical proximity to a relatively wealthy and urbanized society, as I saw in the Oxford, Mississippi area. However, I rarely saw a system of core values so ingrained as those we have in America stand in such obvious counterpoint. Certainly, I saw haves and have-nots in many places, but class and racial systems were often completely accepted in those places. Our system is different, and what might appear a natural part of a foreign society someplace else here screams out as a violation of our core values. Disenfranchisement, either as the result of deliberate malice or as the result of pure indifference, does not fit comfortably into our social fabric. Yet, without any feeling of loss, these people of the Mississippi woods have lived with few of the benefits that society does bring to the franchised. Possibly, and actually likely, the lack of governmental support is countered by ancient cultural ties and strong religious convictions. The woods are dotted with small, one-room, wood-frame churches. They appear in clearings, often as remote as the homes in which the congregants live. Deep-seated religion is the one exception to absolute self-sufficiency. It is the one place where they reach out and ask for help with their daily lives. In America, I have concluded from personal experience that only the coal miners of southern Appalachia approach the way the people in the North Mississippi woods exist. Oddly enough, in southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky, there is a deep-seated hatred, almost bordering on pathological, among those who carry the tools into the mines every day in regard to their dark-skinned cousins throughout the rest of the South. It may be a survival of the fittest situation in that there are meager resources to go around. The fears of the Old South die hard in this area, and intolerance is a way of life. At times, it even bubbles to the surface with rough-hewn signs along the sides of mountain roads warning persons with certain skin colors to not be caught in that county after dark. Again, 
This is not 1870, but the late 20th century. I haven't been to the coal mines in quite a few years, but like the deep Mississippi woods, I doubt much has changed. I must apologize for my digression. I warned you that these stories were tales best told in a pub. I have wandered, somewhat deliberately and somewhat in the embrace of long-forgotten thoughts. I will attempt to bring you back to the essence of my story. Johnny Z, his friend and I, walked down that rutted road leading to what was now Sardis Lake's farthest reached to the north. As the afternoon closed in, it became chillier and the sky more dusk-like. It was one of those afternoons where there is not enough sun to cast a shadow. The loose stones and fallen leaves crunched underfoot. I was excited to be on my first duck hunt, especially with two experienced guys like these. I had never fired a shotgun before. Johnny had given me a short primer before we set off that afternoon. We had stopped along the way at a small dry goods store that also sold ammunition to local hunters. In that part of Mississippi, you could buy a box of shotgun shells as easily as a can of soda at about any convenience store. I was now duly armed with my fraternity buddy's 12-gauge pump shotgun and a box of lead number 5 shot shells. Cancer from lead poisoning was not even on our radar, so I'm quite sure it was not steel number 5 shot like used by today's duck hunters. I felt relatively comfortable. Although I had never fired a shotgun or any real weapon for that matter, I had been a formidable urban hunter before moving from Massachusetts. When I was an early teen, the city streetlights consisted of bare incandescent bulbs hanging under steel hats. There were no protective fiberglass globes or the like. Armed with a BB gun, I systematically darkened certain areas on a regular basis. I became an excellent shot and could pick off a bulb with a single round. I felt pretty confident that my shooting skills were adequate to handle a shotgun. We got closer to the water's edge with each step. Johnny Z limped along. Both he and his friend chewed tobacco and spit the juice every few feet. We chatted about the careless subjects of three young college guys off on another jaunt. Among the trees, you could see small birds fly and call to one another. In the silence between our words, you could also hear the combined splashes of turtles startled off their perches, bass rolling on the surface, and snakes dropping into the water from tree limbs. I always wondered about the snakes. I never actually saw one. Johnny Z and his friend, however, seemed to relish describing the potential threat to me. When we reached the closest water, I had expected us to detour along the bank to a natural blind of some sort. I figured these guys knew the territory from prior hunts. The conversation went quiet all of a sudden. The damp overcast of the gray sky seemed to envelop the swamp with a sound-dampening weight. The only noise became the frequent splash of the fish and what I perceived to be other swamp creatures. Johnny Z's friend 
was the first, and then Johnny Z behind him. The detour I expected was not to happen. They waded directly into the water until it reached hip deep. I, by this time, had been infused with the contact dose of machismo. If I held back for even an instant, my virility and indirectly my ability to hunt with these guys in the backwoods again would be challenged. So I fell and stepped directly behind them. We held our guns across our chest and kept our ammunition above water level. We floated a dozen or so decoys along with us. Each step was carefully planted to ensure that it did not go into a hole or become lodged in the branches of a fallen tree covered by the high water. The conversation ceased completely. Now we were alert to the sounds of the forest. The splashes in the water continued. The birds ran from us as interlopers in their world. Step by step, we listened for the telltale sound of ducks. Incredulously as it was to me, we waited for about a mile, deeper with each step into the swamp. There was no trail. Between the water and the density of the trees and bushes, there was no landmark or sign to follow. We just seemed to be headed in a general direction, with the water getting just a little deeper moment by moment. The eerie quiet punctuated by splashes of water just beyond our line of sight began to define the desolateness. Out in the swamp, more than a mile now, we left behind the lifelines of sound and sight, should we have needed them. We would not be hurt. Surely any cries would be dampened before they would reach human ears. We would never be seen. No one would look for us for a long time. We had not given anybody the specifics about where we were headed, like one might leave a float or a dive plant when boating or diving. There were no waypoints or check-in times to be missed, which might set off an alarm. Should anyone actually come looking for us here in the backwaters, the trees would prevent any easy sighting. All in all, I knew we were very alone out there. My realization would have been left on deaf ears had I voiced it. As much as it seemed a serious confrontation with nature and good sense, my buddies were operating under a different reality than my own. I was glad to see shortly that neither Johnny Z nor his friend considered himself immortal. As we got further from landfall, they began to tie small bows of fluorescent reflector tape in the trees at eye level. Like leaving crumbs, it would be our only way to find our way out after sunset when we headed back. Now each step brought the water higher than the one before. The tape was kept up high just in case the water rose while we were out there. It would also make it easier to see with a flashlight when we started our egress. A flashlight! It struck me that we would be wandering in a swamp in North Mississippi with turtles and snakes with loaded guns in the dark. It also struck me for the first time, just how far I had come from the preppy environs of Boston and Cambridge. We stopped periodically to assess our situation. We had walked and waited for over an hour and still had not come across any teals. We knew the ducks were out there. We could hear their calls as they passed overhead beyond the tree line. 
Every once in a while, we could also hear the flap of wings and the splash of a water landing. We pressed on, and still nothing. It was only moments after our last step when we broke into an unexpected clear spot in the swamp. At first, I was not aware of what caused the trees to be missing in that particular place. I did not get a chance to contemplate it long. Across the open space, over a stand of trees on the opposite side, we could see the ducks coming in for landings. It was getting late in the afternoon, and after one quick reconnaissance loop to ensure its safety, they were coming directly into a small bay of water on one side. However, we had a pretty serious problem. From where we stood, they were way beyond the range of any of our guns. Also not least to consider was how we might retrieve any we downed. What had made the big open spot in the middle of the swamp, I wondered. We concluded that it was a deep channel that ran off the river when it was not flooded over its banks. It is hard for me to say how deep, likely 10 to 20 feet. One thing is certain, it was way over our heads, and wading was out of the question. Yet, there were the ducks on the final approach right in front of us. All we had to do is get another few hundred yards to be in range. After all the work to get out this far, it seemed reasonable. It was just a question of how to traverse the water obstacle in front of us. While I was still pondering all of this, my associates were talking in hushed tones up a little ahead of me. In retrospect, I realized that at this point, they actually became conspirators of a sort. They knew the water was deep. They knew we could put ourselves in danger. They also knew that the ducks that were coming in were not teals. Teals would be among them, surely they rationalized. However, what we were looking at were mallards and wood ducks. Pushing out of season thoughts aside, the scent became too strong for them to stop at this point. Can you swim? They asked me. When I answered in my best machismo voice that certainly I could, they answered, good, and without any further hesitation, began to lash the decoys together. They were to be used as a raft. Once the raft was complete, each shotgun was laid on top. One man would swim behind the raft, guiding it with the shotguns to the shallows on the far side. The other two would just swim alongside. It was only 50 yards at most. In blue jeans and heavy boots, it seemed further. Up until then, I had not been cold. During the swim, I was careful to keep my head above water and my hair dry to ward off any chill. Just the same, the adrenaline that was coursing through my body had begun to shut down the blood vessels in my arms and legs in a fight-or-flight dilemma. My ambivalence in reaching the shallows on the opposite side was pronounced. I was glad to have made it, yet I still was wondering what the hell I was doing out there. Ducks just weren't enough for this. Bonding with the guys maybe might justify it. There certainly wasn't any rational reasoning causing me to be out in a Mississippi swamp. It might have simply been a validation of my manhood. We took our positions. I stood in water just above my waist in a thin stand of bushes just beyond the duck's landing spot. The ducks were not too disturbed by our presence and continued coming in. 
I said earlier that my friends had become conspirators. Indeed, they had. They knew as I could not possibly have known that they were not looking at Teal's. In fact, we were not looking at Mallard's either. What we were looking at were dozens of wood ducks, both male and female, looking for a place to spend the night. It only took a few words and the conspiracy was sealed. We were going to shoot wood ducks since we were there. The surreal took another twist. Now I was to be a poacher, too. Somehow, seeing how these guys rationalized away the lawbreaking made it easier. Having seen many other forms of rationalization in Mississippi, which defined a type of normalcy and allowed a certain unholy peace to prevail, I, too, bought into the conspiracy. It was not whether it was right or wrong. Certainly, it was wrong. However, didn't one have to see it as a matter of relative degree? We were hunters, and they were ducks. We were here with the wood ducks, and the teals were not. We had spent a lot of time and effort getting here, and others, those who might not poach, had not. In its finale, the rationalization concluded. And what are the chances of getting caught? Ah, getting caught. Now there's another question. If one gets caught poaching, there are a few choices, most of which depend on who is doing the catching. Getting caught can mean a quick payoff to the authority and is turning away of eyes as you get out of his district. At times, it can mean no more than a ticket and fine. In its worst case, it can mean confiscation of everything involved in the crime. Guns, cars, boats, decoys, anything and everything. Along with the confiscation can come large fines and jail time. I could not be sure right then, but it seemed to me that getting caught might also mean missing school, flunking classes, losing a scholarship, and getting a one-way ticket to a rice paddy, not at all unlike where I was standing right then. Where Johnny Z and his friend saw it as normal tension between hunter, game, and the authorities, and where in fact few poachers ever really get caught, and where most of those who do get caught do so by those who don't mind a few extra bucks spending money, my rationalization was finding its finite end. However, the battle between rationalization and machismo having begun, it would be machismo that would win out. My adrenaline had begun to pump. Although my hands were wet from our swim, I realized that they had begun to sweat a little. We were spread out about 20 feet from one another. I had a round chambered and my right forefinger on the safety waiting for the first flight to come into my shooting arc. Johnny Z's friend was first to shoot. He nailed one immediately, and it went into a limp freefall to the water just a few feet from him. Neither Johnny Z nor I had shot yet. All of a sudden, we could see four ducks making their approach. They were headed directly at us as if we did not even exist. They were clearly going to be in both Johnny Z's and my arc. Johnny Z was first to shoot. He shot once and hit the lead bird. He pumped quickly, sighted in, and hit a second directly behind it. It was contagious. There was the thunder of three shotguns, the sight of the kill, and the smell of the smoke from expended shells. There was also the testosterone-laced 
competition of men determined not to be outdone. Any misgivings I had a moment earlier were now long gone. When the first wood duck came within reasonable range, I released the safety, sighted in over the pea-like tip at the end of the smooth barrel, slipped my finger into the trigger guard, and began to pull back. It was not a matter of whether to pull or squeeze. I was not thinking of the finesse of shooting. If my breath had stopped, it was in anticipation of the sound and kick that I knew would be immediately forthcoming. It was not to increase accuracy. It was more in apprehension. I wasn't quite sure what might happen once I pulled the trigger. The speed of sound on the surface of the earth travels at a little over 700 miles an hour. Mach 1 is the technical term. It is much slower than the speed of light. There is a theorem of physics that says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Archimedes also tells us that an object floats if the water it displaces weighs more than the object itself. When I pulled the trigger of that 12-gauge shotgun, I got a quick lesson in all four. First, there was a flash at the end of the barrel, barely perceptible before the report of the round being fired. I had been standing, I must say naively, completely flat-footed. Rather than bracing myself with my feet somewhat parallel to the direction of the gun, I had the gun pointed out from my body almost at a 90-degree angle. I also had it loosely under my chin, merely resting against my shoulder. I heard the report. After that, things get a bit jumbled. Action and reaction. I now knew quite a bit about it. The shotgun came flying back at my shoulder. The full force of the recoil was not the least dampened. The impact was like being tackled by a linebacker. It hit high and doubled me back at the waist. The next thing I knew, I was underwater, lying flat on my ass at the bottom of a Mississippi swamp. Indeed, I had wandered a long way to get here. Archimedes' principle worked perfectly, and I lay sunk until a helping hand grabbed the shotgun from me. The water was shallow. There was no real danger, only embarrassment and loss of face. Even the gun had been kept from damage. As I lay on the bottom, I had kept my hand raised above the surface with the gun protected from the water. The only damage was done to my psyche, with possibly a little bruising to my right shoulder. When I came to the surface, I wasn't faced by a couple of friends concerned about my safety. I was faced by two tellers of tales who could not wait to get back to civilization. This was a tale that would have legs, as they say. Unfortunately, in fact, it did. They were so amused that I thought we might be forced to abort our hunt due to the incessant laughter that began to molest the peace and quiet needed for more duck landings. I was given some relief. Although I had never seen it, my round had been true and taken down the duck at which it was aimed. In between laughs, Johnny Z held it up for me to see. I was now first-blooded in a way. Certainly, my amphibious antics had kept me from being fully accepted into the Brotherhood. I had, in some way, however, become an associate member. It took 30 minutes or so for the swamp to resume its placid self. We again blended into the natural setting as best we could.
It only took an hour or so more, and we had bagged about ten ducks. By then, the sun was almost completely down. The dusk had more rapidly turned to darkness in the last fifteen minutes. Now I felt a descend. It wasn't so much a visual perception as it was tactile and oral. The darkness seemed to have body and form. As I heard the splashes in the distance, I knew it had life. There was no moon or other ambient light as we swam back across the channel. This time we had the ducks on our raft. We picked up our trail of fluorescent tape by shining the flashlight into the trees. It took a moment, and then there was the pink return light off in the distance. Single file, we made a tree to tree, each tape sighting, bringing from me a quiet sigh of relief. I was last in our column, and I was very sure not to fall too far behind. By my reckoning, we were pretty close to the access road when we stopped. Again, there were conspiratorial whispers, which I could not make out. Johnny Z's friend indicated that he had to go ahead, and we were to stay back in the swamp. We would keep all the ducks with us while he went up to the car and made sure that our shots had not attracted any law enforcement officers. If the coast was clear, he would give a type of signal he made by cupping his hands and hooting loudly. He also gave us a signal if we had to just stay back for a few minutes. He gave us a third signal that indicated that we were to drop the ducks and appear out of the swamp as if we had been there all right, but we had been skunked. He and Johnny Z agreed that we were close enough to the road that it was best if he took the light. If we got lost coming out, he could guide us with his signals. It was more important for him to get a quick reconnoiter by following the trail we had left. So once again, this time in the dark, I was left to ponder what the hell I was doing out there. There were no authorities skulking near our parked car waiting to jump us. We heard the signal and with a minimum of effort made our way up to the road. A few minutes later, we were on our way back down into Oxford. We remained vigilant and within the speed limit. An overzealous cop seeing in the ducks could still cause a lot of trouble. Overall, however, we were pretty much on the home stretch after a successful hunt. I was very pleased with myself. The testosterone probably let me temporarily omit from memory certain events I viewed from underwater. Anyway, they had not been voiced earlier. With the exception of my dunk, the special cleaning the gun would need, and the stories that I am sure my two compatriots were to tell at my expense, it had been a good day, all in all. I was an officer in my fraternity. I made out the payroll checks for our cooks each week and had an uneasy truce with them about the timeliness of their issuance. It was a good-natured tension that came from the thick head I often had on the day they were due. I could never get by the kitchen and up the back stairs to my room without May Helen or Willie grabbing me and reminding me what day it was. These women were the best. We could have hardly come from more diametrically apart worlds. Me, the Boston slant Florida Yankee, and them from the small rural towns up the road from Oxford where a lot of the university's domestic help lived. They worked early Monday morning through noon on Friday. 
Willie was a very large black woman with an intimidating way about her when she was angry. May Helen was the opposite. She was a small black woman who spoke quietly in a more subdued way. Between the two of them and Louise, our fashionable Arkansas-born house mother, a lot of young men were well taken care of over the years. Our cooks were paid little. As an offset, they were allowed to take anything left over from our meals for themselves or as feed for their livestock. There was rarely any garbage around that house. Willie's pigs ate the best, I think. Although I could never be sure what caused it, my brothers or my cooks, our inventory shrank in good beef would indicate that at times someone else was eating pretty well too. In truth, I had a tacit agreement with Louise that a steak or two going up the road now and again was not to be considered a firing offense. When I came in the back door of the fraternity house with my two ducks that evening, Willie automatically took them from me and told me she would do them up special for me. That night, I shared my hard-caught game with my brothers. Johnny Z shared with them the comical truth about how this redneck Yankee came by it.